Hello and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And my friends, welcome to a very special yearly event here on Staff Picks. It's Horror Month where I try to crank out as many horror movies as possible and tell you all the fun stuff out there that you either have never seen before or you should really watch again and give it a little more attention because it's fantastic. And my first movie this year for Horror Month, I'm so excited to talk about because this is one of those movies that is endlessly important, has influenced so many other movies and tropes and trends over the years. Almost everyone from its era remembers it and remembers where they were the first time they saw it, but it had never really crossed over to younger generations. And I'm talking about an old 1975 TV movie called Trilogy of Terror, starring Karen Black, which is one of those movies, again, if you're the right age, you know this movie. If you're not the right age, you've probably never heard of it before. So we're going to delve into this movie uh, I have a very special guest for this one, and I'll, uh, I'm laughing already when I uh, explain it, but I'm so excited to have someone who's actually around my age for this podcast, because usually I have people who are just these young punk kids, these whippersnappers who think Scream invented horror in like 1994, and I'm like, fuck that. No, it didn't. There was horror way before that, and so I'm so excited to find someone else who loves Trilogy of Terror like I do. Uh, let's see. She's an actress an artist. Uh, there's some other stuff that she does as well, but I'll let her explain it because she knows way more about this than I do. Anyway, welcome to the show to talk about Trilogy of Terror, Robin Punselin. Hi, thank you so much for asking me to do this with you. First off, did I get your last name right? Yes, you did. Punselon. Punselon. Okay. So uh, first off, before we get too much into this movie, explain to people who you are and how we met and how you ended up on Staff Picks. Um... I found your podcast, The Survivor Historians. Um, during the pandemic, I went back to the earlier seasons of Survivor from the very start, from Borneo. And I just um, never really gave them the timing. The, I really appreciated it more so. And so when I was looking for podcasts and I found the survivor historians, I was just thrilled because, I mean, there's so much that you delve into with the, um, you know, behind the scenes, the production, um, and um, the culture of it during that time, which, you know, made Survivor what it is. And then I think I followed you on Twitter. I bought your book. Excellent. And then, yeah, and then, you know, I noticed that you were mentioning certain films that you were covering from previous episodes of Staff Fix. And uh, yeah, and then I, I don't know how Trilogy of Terror came up. I think you mentioned it, and I immediately snagged down to your tweet. <laughs> yeah, again, yeah, Robin and I have never really met until right now. We know each other through Twitter, but I had been fishing a while back for hosts for Staff Picks, and I just threw out a couple of movies I wanted to talk about, and I threw out Trilogy of Terror. And you, you latched right onto that one. Well... Because, as you know, for those of us during that time, um, at that age, that Zuni doll, there's like this huge collective. And even when I posted a picture of it on my Instagram mentioning this podcast, I got immediate reaction from everyone. And even people that 
are not following me for film or theater or anything like that, but like figure skating fans, that's that doll with Karen Black. <laughs> I love that I've crossed over into the, the figure skating crowd now. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, you're involved in figure skating? Yeah, I, my family, one side of the family are, are uh, former Olympic skaters. Yeah, so I'm kind of, I do figure skate for exercise and fun. So I follow Twitter. I have, you know, the figure skating group of people as well. Yeah. <laughs> so this is now my audience. I have the Survivor fans, the obscure <laughs> movie fans, and the figure skaters. I'm, the, I'm a triple threat. <laughs> no, anyway, I'm so excited to finally meet you because, again, we've been sharing emails for months about movies and stuff. And, and finally, we get to this trilogy of terror, which, again, for my audience, I'm not kidding you. If you're younger... You probably do not get what a big monumental this movie was for a time. Like it literally fucked up an entire generation of kids because it was on TV and it was terrifying. Right. And I was trying to remember how I saw it. And it was I was correct when I went back to do the research. It was an ABC Tuesday night movie. So, you know, I mean, that during that time, the only other scary per individual was the candy man and chitty chitty bang bang now we're really showing our age but <laughs> you know everything in that time i don't i think i was in the room it was dark maybe it was maybe i remember it darker and scarier than it actually was mm -hmm. and the you know yeah it's and it's still yeah it's unbelievable yeah again i i most of my, as I said earlier, most of my guests on the show are much younger. Uh, Rob and I are around the same age. We are children of the 70s. We were there during all of this. I didn't personally see Trilogy of Terror the night that it aired because I was only one year old. But, but I knew about it. You knew about this even if you didn't see it. Right, because I think that they had aired it. I mean, it had been on TV throughout the 80s as well. So if I didn't see it that Tuesday night... I, I doubt I did because I was really young. So it could have been just replayed late at night, mm -hmm. you know, like at 11 o'clock at night when the kids are supposed to be in bed, but you're not in bed. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. My parents wouldn't let me see horror movies or R-rated movies. So I can imagine this comes on TV at 830 on a Tuesday and my parents are just a oh, hell no, that's not going to happen tonight. <laughs> Go watch the Dukes of Hazard or something else. Go watch that instead. <laughs> Yeah. Now, that was also banned from my house. Really? I was not allowed to watch Jiggle TV as a young boy. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my mom was quite Lutheran, and my dad was quite Catholic. And even though they didn't agree on all things religion, they both agreed that Mario should not be titillated by the TV. But, you know, somebody meant, made a comment about this on Twitter. Um, I think it's a film. Um, I think you follow him as well. There's a gentleman that posts, you know, films mm -hmm. and things are certainly, how would I say it? Oh, I'm trying to think of the appropriate word looser back then. You know, there are things that were on TV back then that I don't think we would see today on TV. Yeah. I would say there was a much uh, blurrier line between PG and R back then. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Like even Wonder Woman, I am shocked little kids were watching Wonder Woman with her bouncing around. Like, <laughs> I don't think they would allow that on TV in primetime for kids nowadays. No, no. <laughs> okay, so Trilogy of Terror, to paint a picture for people who might not know this movie. This was, again, a TV movie, 
And this is back in a time when TV movies could be legitimately scary. And anybody who grew up in that era would know this is not the only one. There's a lot. Like, have you seen other terrifying TV movies from like the 70s or 80s? Well, let's see. I think Burnt Offerings, but I think that came out in the theater. And Karen Black was also in Burnt Offerings. Um, I I knew who Karen Black was because we actually went to see Airport 75. And that was, to me, my – when I think of Karen Black, I immediately go to that movie because I think my parents took us to see that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think so. You know, and again, it it was usually movies that like, if you know, when you're up so late and your parents don't know you're up, you know, and you turn on the TV and it's, that's when all that scary stuff is on. <laughs> yeah. But again, this one was on at eight 30 on a Tuesday. I know that's, that's odd. That's really odd to me. <laughs> yeah. I was reading some older contemporary reviews of this movie and they all point out, You know, there had never been anything on TV remotely like this before. This was such a game changer in the type of stuff they could get away with for horror on TV. Well, and all three, all three parts of Trilogy of Terror, when you think about it, because people usually forget the first two because it didn't make as much of an impact as the third with the Zuni doll. Mm -hmm. And I was rewatching those. I'm like, this is some heavy duty stuff. (laughs) Yeah, there's a couple topics in this movie. I do not think they would put in a TV movie now, especially the no. uh, the date rape one. No. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's going to be an 830 TV family movie anymore. No, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, so for to point a, paint a picture for people again, this movie came out in 75. It is now in the Hall of Fame for scariest and greatest TV movie ever. There's some other ones that I love as well. There's one called Someone's Watching Me made by John Carpenter. I'm going to cover later in horror month. There's uh, one called don't go to sleep from the early eighties. That's one of the most terrifying movies I've ever seen. Uh, let's see. You had duel, the Steven Spielberg movie. There's a lot of these TV movies back then, but this one in particular, which features three stories. And the third story is the one that really made, I mean, <laughs> hate to be blunt, made every kid in 75 shit their pants. Yes. <laughs> Okay, let's talk about the star here of this movie, Karen Black, because you kind of alluded to her earlier. Let's give people a history of kind of who Karen Black is in case, like, a lot of younger listeners wouldn't know her. Well, she's been in over 200 films, um, nominated and won uh, Golden Globe Awards, nominated for Oscars. She was in The Great Gatsby. She, I mean, my goodness, Welcome was at Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean. With Cher. She's an easy writer, too. Yeah, lots of stuff. Yes. I mean, there are so many films that she was in that when I looked at her filmography, I was pretty blown away. But during that time in 75, 76, she was kind of like everybody knew her as an actress at that time because she seemed like she was in everything, every big blockbuster film. You know, the airport movies were really something back then. You know, and um, she was just such a, oh, I don't know who to compare to these days. But, you know, you saw her in pretty much everything. I'm thinking like maybe a Julia Roberts in the 90s or something who was like in every movie. Right. Yes. Yeah. And she was the lead and she was very well respected. And uh, um, I, I think I read on the Internet Movie Database, her nickname was the hardest working woman in show business. Right. <laughs> And above all all else, she was also cross-eyed. Was she? 
okay. I mean, I wasn't sure. No, she's not. Okay. It's a kind of a joke, but I don't know. I mean, I guess she's not Yeah, It's her eyes are very small. She had some weird condition that makes her look cross-eyed. And I was listening to the trilogy of terror commentary. And she was talking about how she always had to hide that with eye makeup and make her eyes look bigger, but she's not really cross-eyed. But if you watch like airport 75, all the clips, close-ups of her, she looks like she's straight up cross-eyed. It's, it's kind of an odd effect. Right. Yeah, but she was a, a great actress, very well respected, uh, did a lot of stuff. I said, I mentioned uh, Easy Rider. She's in Nashville, five easy pieces. One of the most respected and biggest actresses in the 70s. And then in 75, she does this TV movie, which she would later say would change her career arc dramatically. And, and did she, I think she, I, I saw an interview with her on YouTube where it's very difficult somebody interviewing her not to bring that film up, you know? Mm-hmm. And as soon as they mention it, she's like, ah, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. It's, I read mixed signals from her, whether she liked this movie or whether she didn't. Right. I, I, I've seen one quote. She said, because of this, I got put onto a path. I never really belonged on in the first place as a B movie horror actress, but that's what most people know her as. But she also said, if you, um, I think it's a vice. Uh, interview and it was um maybe 10 years ago actually it was only a few months before she passed you know it was like that year that she passed and um she said I really was very good in that film I worked really hard and it brought something out of me and she couldn't she wasn't sure if it you know because first of all you're working with an inanimate a doll that's breaking all the time um so, you know, but she said I was really she kind of was proud of her work in that. Yeah. And I've seen some interviews where she says the same thing. And I just actually watched the DVD commentary this afternoon and she says the same thing. She's like, you know, I did some really good work in that movie. And I, I actually agree with her for a horror movie. It's very well acted. Yes. OK. And for, for people who have not seen this movie, Karen Black is in it. Very famous actress from the 70s. She's in the entire movie. They wrote this entire script around her where it's three different stories, three different women who have troubled lives. Although one of them in one of the movies, she plays dual roles. So she literally plays four different roles through this movie, which is really amazing. Like I, I, I that, that would be hard for a current actress to pull off. I would think. Probably. I mean, Again, especially in the third one, she's not working off of anybody. She's, you know, talking on the phone and that's completely, you know, you're not working off of anyone and then trying to maneuver and bring out the terror of the doll, which a lot of the terror of the doll was just in the editing, editing the shots, the camera work. So, um, yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. This is a silly little TV movie, but she approached it very seriously. And that's why I think it really stands out. And I forgot, I mean, I missed the part. And, you know, now being older and watching it again, I'm paying more attention to everything else besides the doll. Mm -hmm. She had a really uh, unusual relationship with her mother. (laughs) I mean, I didn't, I don't, you know, maybe I was too young to kind of see that. But I'm like, okay, so her mom, you know, and we know what happens at the end. But, um (laughs) You know, these tormented women with these tormented. And so her unusual relationship with her mom and trying to get out on her own, you know, that was kind of an interesting layer to add to it. 
Yeah, and what's interesting is I just read that she added all that in the script. That's basically her adding stuff to the oh. details to the story because she wanted it to be more rich. Wow, that's great. Okay, yeah, for people who haven't seen the movie, she's talking about the third story in the movie. There's, We'll really delve into that when we get into it. Um, let's see, what else did I want to talk about here? Uh, okay, the first time I saw this movie was probably in the late 90s or something. I don't remember specifically. And Karen Black would love that I said this. <laughs> the first time I saw this, I had no idea that was the same actress in all four lead roles. And I read an interview somewhere where she said that that's the highest compliment you can ever give an actor, that you had no idea they were even different characters, that it was the same person. So, again, she passed a couple years ago in cancer of cancer, but she would love that I just said this. Yes, she would. I had no idea that was Karen Black as all four of those people. <laughs> and would you agree with that? Because you were an actress. or still Are you still an actress? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, her character, she completely embodied her character, her character's motive, intent, the script, you know, um, she was fully invested in it. And of course, part of that is in the costuming, the makeup, your physical posture. Um, I mean, you know, as we'll see in the second one, you know, you know, changing how you carry yourself, your voice and so forth, even though you might have a wig on, um, because even in the first one, there's that shift near the end where you go, oh, wait a minute. Oh, <laughs> you know, she's not so much the victim in this. And she immediately kind of changes her demeanor and her body carriage when she turns to him towards the end, when it, you know, when, when the script flips. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. I just realized she doesn't play four women in this movie. She plays five, technically. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, okay, so yeah, so much to say about Karen Black. I think she's so good in this. I I feel bad when I hear that she didn't, like, she was kind of embarrassed by her history as a B-level horror movie actress, but, like, she is so good in this, way better than this movie deserves, to be honest. Like, yeah. She brings it so much uh, realism. So before we get into the three stories themselves, we're going to walk people through this and explain to them why, even though everyone remembers the third movie, the first two are actually pretty fun as well. Mm -hmm. But I do want to talk about the guy who wrote these stories. Do you know much about Richard Matheson? Did you research him before you did this podcast? Yes, and I was. it was interesting because, of course, with all this, you know, I think you're a little more tapped into the history of the horror, but I had no idea that he wrote... Bid Time Return, which was out in 1975, which would end up being the film Somewhere in Time with Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour. Mm, I did not know that. And, right, because when they're mentioning, you know, when you're reading through all these horror films and you're like, and Somewhere in Time, and you're like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> wow. So, okay. So for my younger listeners, Richard Matheson was a big time horror and sci-fi author back in the... 60s maybe 50s i don't know specifically 70s 60s yeah but he would almost be like a proto stephen king like everything he wrote later became you know movies and screenplays and stuff he was very highly influential in fact i swear to god the third story in this movie the one with the zuni doll i swear stephen king ripped that off and wrote a story called battleground which is very similar to this uh-huh yeah <laughs> but matheson was a big deal he wrote all these stories back in the day uh, he later wrote the script for Duel, which became the Steven Spielberg movie. And then all three stories in this movie were written by Richard Matheson. So to put it kind of in a frame of context, it's kind of this the 60s version of Stephen King. That's what this movie is. 
And he wrote for Twilight Zone, didn't he? I believe so, yeah, and that doesn't surprise me. And in fact, I read that Trilogy of Terror was meant to be on Twilight Zone, but they chose not to do it. That also does not surprise me, especially yeah, the second episode would have been hard. The first and third, those are Twilight Zone episodes. Yes, they are, yeah. Okay, cool. Okay, that's, I'm actually learning some stuff here, too, because, again, this is this is not the typical movie I do on Staff Picks just because it's from the 70s. The 70s movies are a little more obscure. Okay, so let's talk about this movie. Again, Trilogy of Terror, this is a, it's only 70 minutes. It's very short. It aired on ABC TV. I wrote down the date, March 4th, 1975, which, again, was the date that I think the most kids in America shit their pants on one night. I think it's been proven. <laughs> so you're saying you don't remember watching it that night specifically, but you watched in a rerun? I don't think I, for some reason, I highly doubt that was on at eight o'clock on a Tuesday. Um, I think I probably caught it years later, not that many years later. I feel like it was, like I said, really late at night. Maybe they replayed it at like 11 o'clock when my brother and I were supposed to be in bed, but we weren't. Mm -hmm. And we were flipping through the channels. Yeah. Okay, that sounds right. Now, did you see that they remade this in the 90s, or they did a sequel to it anyway? I did, and I was trying to find it because I was going to watch it, but I couldn't find it. Yeah, that's probably a good indicator of how beloved it is because I couldn't find it either. Right. <laughs> and I was reading the, the synopsis, and it's literally almost the exact same movie. <laughs> okay, let's delve into this. Are you all ready to go through this now? I'm ready to go. Okay, so there's three stories in this movie. The first one is called Julie. The second one is called, what is it, Millicent and Therese? Mm -hmm. And the, what's the lady in the third? I forgot her name. I didn't write it down. Amelia. Amelia. Okay, so yeah, those are the, it's just the, the women's names are the stories. And we're going to delve into the first one here. And again, this is one that hardly anybody remembers, I bet, but it's still kind of fun. Okay, so I'll give you the honor. Oh, let's. This one opens at a college, and kind of explain the storyline of this one to people who have never seen it. Oh, you want me to? Do that? Uh, absolutely. This is what I give to my guests. This well, is the honor. I mean, I kind of forgot about them, so when I watch them, like, okay, it's at a college, and there's a couple, you know, guys, students hanging out, and she's walking by, and she's dressed kind of, how do I say it? You know, homely. Right? Yeah, homely is uh, a good word. Homely, you know, and they're checking out all the babes on the campus. And the one, well, the one guy, I forget the actor's name, that was their husband in real life. Did you know that? I, I actually didn't until I did the research for this the other day. <laughs> right, which is why she agreed to do the, you know, that movie. But um, he's like, hey, check her out. <laughs> <laughs> That's an excellent impression. Good job. <laughs> Like, boy, can you imagine? I'm like, oh, boy. Yeah, as my daughter would say, it's about a bunch of college bros. That's this first movie. Yeah, and she's just, you know, there's nothing about her that, you know. And then um, they're in class, in the classroom, and she's discussing, I think, Fitzgerald and Faulkner. And, and uh, there's a scene, there's a moment in the scene where, again, I, is why I would never imagine this at eight o'clock on a Tuesday night on the time where her skirt, you know what I'm saying? It's revealing her thighs. Of course. You know, and I forgot about, I forgot about that. And I was like, oh my goodness. Yeah. The, the, the plot of this movie is thus for those who have never seen it. 
two college guys just basically doing the old she's all that, making a bet who's the hottest woman on this campus that I can score with. And they pick this homely teacher, Julia or Julie. And yeah, like you said, they're just in class watching this lady and she's all buttoned up and prim and proper. And, and at one point she's sitting on her desk and her thigh flashes out. So you get a good thought <laughs> shot of Karen Black's inner thigh, which again, Mar five-year-old Mario was not watching much of that in the seventies. <laughs> Even at this age, I was kind of taken back. I'm like, I don't remember that. Yeah. So literally this is, I hate to say it. This is a date rape story. That's what this first one is, that these guys are placing a bet. Who's the, the homeliest girl who probably is really hot deep down, and can I drug her and date rape her? That's literally the story in his family TV movie in eighty in 1975. Oh, my goodness, what we were exposed to. <laughs> well, not what we were exposed to. Look what Chad was exposed to. He saw her thigh. I know we're laughing at this, but this is a horrible story. Well, that's why it's just the absurdity of it. Because, you know, over time, so much has changed in the culture we're in and what we watch on TV and, you know, the sensitivity to these things that back then, even in music in that time, you would never see these days. Yeah, it's really interesting. This, this is something my wife has pointed out to me that, like, back in the 70s when we grew up, people our age, the world was adult, and kids were just expected to fit into the adult world somehow. Right. And then somewhere in the 90s, you said stuff like the Disney Channel and stuff, where the kids could have their entire own world, which was different than the adult world. And that didn't really happen until then. Right. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, this guy, Chad, who's going to pick the most homely woman on campus, and <laughs> I don't even know how to describe it without being insensitive, but date raper. Well, and I'm going to throw in something here that's, just an observation that I did, I thought was, um, gave her kind of a back. Well, we got a more, a better idea of her character, which is credit to her being a great actress. Because it, up in the beginning, you really don't know how everything's going to flip around, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, she, I guess she lives in an apartment with another teacher, right? And even her friend is saying you know you really should go out you're always working you're always reading are you okay you know she really was kind of a hermit mm -hmm. you know she just went to school and came home so you immediately she kind of fully fleshed out this character of this teacher that you know never did anything she didn't even go to a movie or do anything until later you know he talks her into doing that but yeah, so she kind of like, so you did not see what was coming near the end, which is, again is credit to her. Yeah. Yeah, this one is a nice switcheroo towards the end, and we'll get to that in a yeah, second. But, yeah. So anyway, yeah, the guy, Chad, who's trying to hit on this woman is literally Karen Black's husband, which you alluded to that earlier. Right. And, and I read that's the only reason she signed on and agreed to do to this movie, because he was set up, he was cast as Chad, the guy who's trying to, you know, date rape a teacher. And she's like, I'd like to be in a movie with him. So that's the only reason she's in this movie at all. Right. <laughs> okay. So, so Julie is being pursued by this guy, Chad. He's going to do the, she's all that on her where, Oh, she, I bet she's hot under those clothes. And there's a scene that you mentioned earlier where Julie's home with her roommate. And my wife just happened to be walking by today when I was watching this movie. And the roommate's like, you know, if you put in a little effort, maybe you'd actually get a guy. And my wife's like, geez, shut up, roommate. That's right. That's, That's harsh. That's a little tough love from the roommate. In today's, you know, today's world, 
if a woman wrote that script, I highly doubt she would have another woman saying that to another woman. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> so back then, you know, most of the writers and directors, they were male. So they kind of embodied that. Yeah, this is OK. You know. <laughs> well, that, yeah. And, and to follow up on that, now we get another scene right after this where Chad starts pursuing his teacher, Julie. And she's supposed to be an older woman, even though they're like the exact same age. I don't know. Right. They look very similar. They're, they were married in God, for, for God's sake in real life. But yeah, but they're walking, they're talking about literature and they're talking about if rape is an appropriate storyline in literature. And he's like, I think it's, it's fine. You can show violence. And she's like, I don't think they should show that kind of thing in stories. So they're literally talking about this episode, this movie as in the episode. Right. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, so yada, yada, yada. Chad finally convinces her to go out on a date. And again, he has ill intentions for her. She doesn't know that. She's just this prim and proper school teacher. And what, they go to a drive-in, like a vampire movie or something? Right. And I think the vampire movie, I took notes, Mario. Um, I think the vampire movie was a movie that was directed by the gentleman. Oh, no, the director of these films, Curtis, I think his name is, Dan Curtis. Yeah. He, that movie, that French vampire movie that they're watching is an actual film that he also directed. So he kind of planted one of his own movies in the, mo in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, I think I read that as well. I think it's a Richard Matheson script directed by Dan Curtis, who directed this movie. And it's like an inside joke because at the drive-in they say, oh, this movie sucks. So they're like taking a dig at the director's own stuff. Right. And they, and I think later they did the Dark Shadows. Ah, okay. um, The Dark Shadows series and films. In, up until the new, the recent, the one with Johnny Depp in it. That one as well. They had their hand in. So, yeah. So this guy was a big deal, the guy who directed this movie. Yeah, there's lots of little interesting gems and nuggets in this. If you really kind of start tracking who's who and who is involved, mm -hmm. it's really interesting. There's so much there, which is kind of really cool to find and appreciate all these years later. I'm glad you brought that up because that just reminds me of a trivia fact I read about Karen Black. She is the number one all-time champion in the Kevin Bacon game. No. I think if you can connect one actor or actress to the most people in Hollywood history, I think she wins. Wow. Yeah, I think I just read that on IMDb Trivia earlier today. Wow. Interesting. Yeah, so good for Karen Black. <laughs> All right. So that's what happens when you're in, like, you know, award-winning movies and also every B-level horror movie ever. You get connected to everybody. Yes. It's a fun rabbit hole to go down. Yeah, that's how you get connected to both Elvis and Corey Feldman. Okay, let's get back to the story here. So, okay. so Julie and Chad are on their date, and they, he goes to a drive-in, and uh-oh, this is where the uh, bad intentions come about. He's going to spike her drink and drug her, and uh, yeah, so uh, this is kind of a seedy scene, although they did, it's mostly implied. They don't really show a lot of it, but let's explain what happens to poor Julie here on the date. See, I, again, I don't remember any of that. I mean, I knew that something you know, there was like a twist and she was, but like watching it again, I'm like, oh my goodness, that happened. And they showed it in a film again on Tuesday night at eight o'clock. I mean, it's just very, so what they go to the drive, the, the movie mm -hmm. and he's like, let me get some refreshments. You see him come back with the, you know, two drinks and he stops and he 
puts something in one of the drinks, comes back to the car, hands her a drink, and then, you know, she takes a drink, and she goes, oh, that's bitter. And um, then she starts to kind of nod off. He's like, are you okay? She's like, uh. And then she, you know, her head tilts over. She passes out. So we know what happened. And then he takes her back to his place, right? It's a, it's a motel. He rents a motel. Oh, that's right. Because he goes in with cash. I think it was only $11. Yeah, it was a good deal back then. I was motel is just 11 and paid in cash and then um again it's so hard to talk about this even just laughing about it you feel awful because it's it's not a funny matter at all i think i'm more just in shock by just making these discoveries as an adult which is as a child you know it doesn't always land on you you don't really get it or know that Mm -hmm. you know um and then what he undresses or he takes photos of her. Yeah, that's important to the plot for people who don't know. He's a photographer. So that's his whole goal. Right. He's a photographer. That's his hobby. And when she's passed out on the bed, he, you know, she's obviously stripped down and he's taking photos of her. And then the next thing you see is there, um, she's in the car with her taking her home and she, you know, she kind of wakes up and says, what time is it? It's really late. And he goes, oh, well, you were tired and I let you sleep. You know, in the movie, I'm sorry, you were looking forward to it. No, that's okay. You work really hard. You know, you needed to sleep. And then, you know, she goes in. And I don't know if her, remember, was her roommate there when she comes back in? Uh, no, we see her roommate later. Right. Yeah, it's okay. So, yeah, so she gets drugged, uh, taken advantage of. We don't see it. It's implied, again, that uh, that's why we're kind of you know it's not funny at all but we're just laughing at the audacity that this movie would exactly yeah, yeah exist on primetime family hour like i'm sorry do we want to watch hee-haw tonight or the date rape horror movie like this is literally the choice in 1975 we don't see it it's all implied but she's drugged and then later the next day he calls her and says you know uh we need to go out again and she's like no i can't uh, you know i I, I'm not supposed to date students. It's not appropriate. And he's like, no, you will show up and I'll tell you why when you get here. And so from here on out, he's blackmailing her as basically it's not spelled out in the story, but I would assume some sort of a sex slave. Right. Family hour, by the way, I should point out. Well, he shows her the photos, you know, and he's like, by the way, you can have those. I have the negatives. And then her roommate catches on like what's going on. You know, I mean, not that she doesn't always act like a, nervous little mouse because she doesn't go on do anything but she's especially more so because her roommate is like something's up tell me what's going on yeah and the roommate's there to provide exposition because she says you've been acting weird for a month what's going on so that's that's the backstory this this uh, blackmail goes on for a month where he basically says yeah you come and do everything that i say or i'm going to share these pictures of you and you'll be fired so it's a whole month that he blackmails her and again these this movie's only it's 70 minutes long. So each one of these three stories is only 20 minutes. We're almost to the end of this story, by the way. <laughs> okay, so let's get to the twist here, where this one has a fun little twist at the end, which is, it's it's a little more of a feminist story than perhaps we've been uh, leading you to believe, where there's a little uh, subtle twist in the end. So at one time, they're on a date there at his house, and she's like, you know what? The gig's up. I'm done. And he's like, what do you mean? And she's like, well, I'm bored of you. You bore me now. <laughs> And he's like, no, I'm not bored. We will continue to go out until I say we are not going out. And I will leave it to you to 
go for the reveal. So Robin, share the reveal with us. Okay, well, so immediately her character and her tone has changed. She's got her hair down. She's kind of got a very dominant way of carrying herself. It's like, I'm not terrified. I'm not scared. I'm just bored. And you're like, uh, oh, no, she's offered him a drink. Yeah, they're both drinking. And he's on the couch, and he starts spitting up and coughing, and she said, oh, you won't pass out. You'll just die. <laughs> that is a great line. Yeah, she says, basically, she starts talking shit to him. She's like, you're so boring. You're dull. You're uninteresting. Do you think you possibly could have come up with this scheme on your own? And he's like, what happened? He starts shivering and shuddering because she's poisoned his drink. And he's starting to connect the dots. Like, wait a minute. Yeah, so I wrote this down. She says, ever since you watched me walk up those steps, your mind has not been your own, Chad. Why do you think you suddenly had that overwhelming desire to see what I look like underneath all these clothes? And he's like dying. He's like choking and spitting up blood. And she's like, oh, don't feel bad. I always get bored after a while. Although there was this one boy in Denver who almost kept me abused for uh, nine weeks. <laughs> yeah. So this is it. She's like, uh, he's dying. He's passing out. She's like, first you'll experience dizziness, then mild paralysis, and then total cardiac arrest. And he says, you've drugged me. And she says, oh, no, dear. I've killed you. <laughs> That's a great line. I love that line. Yeah. And then she goes in his dark, after he dies, she goes in his dark room and you see her, she's mentioning about being careful about the chem. I warned him about how strong these chemicals can be. His photography chemicals. Yes. She lights a match and then you see these flames come up in front of her in this dark room. And then does it cut back out to the next morning, right? Yeah, she basically kills Chad, she poisons him, kills him, burns down his house, burns down all the negatives, so there's no proof that he ever dated her. And basically the next day is her in her house crying and her roommate comes in. She's like, oh, your boyfriend died. He was one of your favorites. Or no, your student. Your best. He was one of your best students, wasn't he? And Julie's just crying. <laughs> so... And she's reading the newspaper about student dies in a fire. Mm -hmm. Which is important because there's a scrapbook. Yes. All right, explain this to people. Give away the reveal. You know, she's looking at the paper, and she's kind of shaking her, like, yes, I just can't believe it. And her roommate's like, that's so sad. And then the next shot, she's in front of She opens up a scrapbook, which is all these news clippings of various male students over the years in car accidents. Mm -hmm. All these awful deaths. It's a big old paper trail she kept of her destruction. <laughs> I saw one guy fell off a cliff. One guy, he was pushed off a cliff. Yeah, yeah so Julia apparently is not this uh, prim and proper teacher who was taken advantage of. No, she's not. She's like a, a black widow. Yeah, she's she's been luring young men to their deaths for years somehow with some kind of mind control. <laughs> So I guess that makes it a little more family-friendly for 830. Oh, it's okay that he date-raped her because it was her choice all along. I mean, that's the twist. That's literally the twist written by the guy in the script. I know. Right. So she, yeah, blazed a path of destruction like Annie Wilkes in Misery and kept a scrapbook of all her victims. <laughs> and it ends with a tutor, right? The kid, the, the tutor kid? Oh, that's right. It doesn't end there. There's a new boy that knocks on her door. 
this new kid, Arthur, who saw her ad advertising if anybody need tutoring. So he walks in. He's like, oh, hello, miss, whatever. Can I get some tutoring? She's like, oh, yes, I think we're going to be great friends. And so, you know, her path of destruction will continue. <laughs> and scene. I like that story. Again, this is, again, it's a trilogy. There's three stories in this movie. Everyone's going to remember the third one. No one remembers this first one, but I like this first story. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Now when you go back, you're like, I think this is a little more terrifying than the doll. Well, I mean, that's the thing. Like, yeah, if, if my mom had watched this movie and, like, if it was seen, if it was appropriate for me as a kid, the doll is one thing, but the guy spiking the girl's drink and then date raping her, that's the stuff my mom would not want me to watch ever. And even in the second one, which we'll get to, is another pretty heavy-duty, not-so-kind-and-friendly theme. Yeah. And you'd be more concerned about how your children would, you know, digest that over, okay, well, it's a doll and he's got to, you know, well, we'll get to that. But, yeah, it's it's interesting when you look in a, in a new lens later in age, especially decades later. You know, where the entire climate of filmmaking and culture has drastically changed since then. Yeah. And again, it's very similar to what I said before. It was very much an adult world back then. And kids just had to had to figure out how to fit into it somehow. Right. <laughs> and again, this is a horror movie. I mean, that first story was supposed to be horrific. The second one is probably the weakest of the three stories. It's called I, uh, I agree. Millicent and Therese. But I will say... I love Karen Black's acting in this one. So even though the story is not that interesting, she's very impressive in it. Absolutely. And um, there's a couple recognizable actors in it. I don't know if you did any, if you looked into who they were. The one gentleman, well, we'll get to it when you. Oh, yeah. We'll get to George Gaines. I know we have, I have plenty to say about him. Right. <laughs> okay, so that's the first story. Julie, the uh, black widow who spun her web and kills students, make, makes them lust after her. The second one is interesting because I was listening to the DVD commentary. I don't know if you know about this. This story, it's about 20 minutes long in the episode, but it's based on a one-page short story. Hmm. And so when the director got a hold of it, he's like, how could I possibly turn this into a 20-minute segment? Because it's only one page long. And he had to add a lot of details and add some stuff. But, like, it's a very simple premise that I think has been done, done better in other movies. But it's still Im impressive to see how she pulls it off. Right. Absolutely. Okay. So there's two characters in this next one. They're twin sisters named Millicent and Therese. And kind of explain to people who Millicent is. Okay. Millicent is the um, Julie, right? You know, she's got the buttoned up blouse all the way up to under her chin. She's got those glasses where, I mean, they're really like, um, thick lenses, mm -hmm. you know, like she can barely see her hair's all tied up. Yeah. She's like a spinster. She is exactly. Is she sitting there making a phone call to... A doctor? No, wait, their father passed. See, now I'm getting... I got it. Okay, yeah, this is the least memorable of the three stories. I am not surprised you are getting the details mixed up. It starts with Millicent, the prim and proper, exceptionally uptight woman, uh, writing in her diary. That's all she does in this one. She writes in her diary. And it starts with, I believe, they just had a funeral. Her father just died. She's been watching home movies of her and her father. And... 
her, her father's death has made her remember some things and she's writing them down in her journal. And basically what she's writing down is that I, I hate my twin sister, Therese. Therese is a slut. So Therese is a whore. Therese seduced my father and had a sexual affair with him. Again, family TV movie for 830. <laughs> yeah, so that's the whole thing of this movie. She's just writing in her diary and she hates Therese. Right. And the subject matter, just that two sentences, just like, ooh, you know. <laughs> yeah. I don't think, again, I don't think I'm being allowed to watch this one <laughs> right after The Incredible Hulk. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay, but for people who have never seen it, Karen Black does an amazing job. This is a split personality uh, story. It's I'm um, just to give away the twist right at the start about a woman who you think is two different people, but it's really one with two personalities. But Karen Black does such an amazing job differentiating between these two people. Like the more I watch it, the more impressed I am by this one. Right. Me too. Me too. So as an actress, apart from the wig, the clothing, and granted, when you're on stage or on a film set, what you put on, you immediately embrace and adapt is your, a sense of your psyche for that character. Um, it's kind of like, you know, when you go out and you buy a new coat, you immediately feel wonderful, and, you know. So even when you look at the wig she wears, her glasses, there still has to be an element of more the actor is, is bringing to fully flesh that out. Otherwise, you're just seeing an actor in costume. But what she does is, at first, you notice the outfit, but you're so reeled into her, her intensity in her eyes and her delivery in the dialogue that you just immediately completely buy it 100%. Yeah, I was reading a description of Karen Black that said, you know, most actresses just act with like their face and their eyes and their hands. But she acted with her whole body, which is kind of unusual. Oh, she did. Absolutely. And this story in particular, which is why I think it's kind of a shame this story gets forgotten in the memories of this movie. But like as Millicent in particular, like she's playing someone who's a good 30 years older than her in real life. Like and she changes every little bit of her body language. You totally buy her as this, you know, 50, 60 year old uptight woman. And that's not what Karen Black was like at all. She is a very attractive. Karen Black is a visually beautiful, attractive glamour glamorous actress but she has she's such a chameleon in a way she fully embraces every aspect of the character down to just like the intensity and when you you know her shoulders are up to her ears and her anger and her frustration she's using her entire body you believe she is an older angrier woman and then we see what happens when he meets the, her alter ego Therese, yeah, yeah. Oh, um, I was reading some trivia about this. In fact, I think it was on the DVD commentary where she says, you know, everyone remembers the Zuni doll, but the reason I took this script, like when I took it, I thought the most interesting story was the second one. This is the story that intrigued her. She's like, because one of the things is I have very tiny eyes, these little cross-eyed, crossed eyes, and they gave me these glasses that are basically magnifying glasses. She has these little old lady magnifying glasses, and they made her eyes look so big. They did. And she's like, between that and the fact that I get to play someone who's like in her 60s in this episode, in this movie, I knew I would never get another role like that for 30 years. So I wanted to take this movie just for that role because I'd never get to play that again. Interesting. Yeah. So there you go. The, the thoughts of an actress from one to another. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so let's get back to this. So, yeah, Millicent, the uptight, prim and proper spinster in her 50s or 60s, says, I hate my sister. My sister has driven my family apart. She's slept with my father. She killed my mother. And then at one point she calls her psychiatrist, Dr. Uh, I have no idea what his name was, Ramsey or something. And this is the guy you talked about, George Gaines. So I will give this, I will turn this over to you. Talk about George Gaines for a second. Well, I don't. I don't know. I'm trying to remember what I've seen him in. He's been in many other films or soap operas. <laughs> he was, for my uh, 80s listeners, he was in the TV show Punky Brewster. He played her dad. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. But then even more so than that, he's in the Police Academy movies. He's the commandant of the entire... Right. I almost wanted to say the airplane movies, but he wasn't in those. I knew it was some kind of film, you know, some kind of film along that kind of humor <laughs> yeah so he did trilogy of terror and then hundreds and hundreds of broadway plays and then police academy <laughs> oh. <laughs> anyway i just love george gaines has such a distinct voice if you've seen punky brewster or police academy you guys will recognize him instantly but he shows up here as the psychiatrist well and doesn't she call she calls millicent calls him and says i'm really worried about therese my crazy sister therese you really need to come and see her. She's gotten worse, blah, blah, blah. And then he shows up at the door. You know, he shows up. Actually, it's a very nice house. It's like a mansion. Yeah, it's a really nice house. In fact, I think I read in the trivia that she was living right next door to this house. This is some famous mansion they filmed it in. Yeah, it's beautiful, the exterior and everything. And he comes up, knocks on the door. The door is opened, and they're standing this sassy, saucy, voluptuous, Therese and the long blonde wig and the short red mini skirt and well, hey. <laughs> yeah, Karen Black, you can tell, was having a fun time with this role. Wow. I mean, and there you go. And there you go. You notice the difference in the body. She's much more relaxed and looser and more open in her space of how she uses her body, which Therese, if she's more comfortable with her sensuality, would be so. Mm -hmm. You know, she wouldn't be typed up, you know, tight and clinchy and frightened but she's very it's just like again it's like you can't help but really appreciate again how amazing karen black was in these film in this film yeah yeah this movie in particular the middle one the middle story where george Gaines, the psychiatrist comes over and she's like this southern belle she's blonde she's got huge platform heels she's swaying her hips like like I said, I had no idea these were all the same actress the first time I watched this movie. That's how good she is. And she's like flirting with the doctor and coming on to him and like patting him and trying to get him drunk. And he's like, look, I am a doctor. I cannot do this, Therese. And again, this is a very simple story. It was one, it was one page in real life, but it's really Millicent and Therese are the same person. And the doctor knows this. And we don't know this as viewers, although it's pretty obvious. Right. <laughs> it's not hard to figure out. You never see them in the same scene. Well, and he leaves. He's like, that's enough. I'm done here. You're fine. You know, and he leaves. And then she goes walking upstairs to, you know, a door that's locked or closed, banging on the door. Millicent, you know, or wait, I got to get the name right. Millicent, I know you were in there. It didn't work. It didn't work. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. So Millie the spinster hates slutty Therese. And that's her word, not mine. I'm not saying she's one that calls her sister a slut. And apparently the slutty one, Therese, is into voodoo and voodoo rituals and witchcraft and Satanism. And Millicent is like, I cannot condone that in my house. That harlot is using witchcraft in my house. 
Well, and here's another. Who is the first gentleman that comes over? He's not the psychiatrist. No, he's like some boyfriend that has slept with Therese at some point. Right. And I, I just thought it was interesting. So here we go from like this multi-personality character. And all of a sudden, the horror aspect of evil and so forth is when she points, when, you know, is it Therese yet? No, Millicent is like, look at these books on the bookshelves. Satanism, pornography. I mean, it was like, it's a beautiful old library bookshelf. And she and when she's rattling off the books, mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, here we go. <laughs> you know, there's got to be a thread of some kind of evil, you know, before they even show you the doll, the little voodoo doll. Yeah, it's interesting because voodoo does show up in this story and the next one, technically. Right, and, and even in the first one, you could say she used some kind of mental prowess I'm sorry, I'm going back to the first one, but how did she know Chad would said that about her when she walked by? So they implant this, you know, the books on the bookshelf in the second one that Millicent is pointing out that terrible Therese read these books on Satanism, pornography. And I'm thinking, okay, they had to plant that in there, right? Because now we're getting into the little voodoo doll. Yeah, all three of these stories are interesting because if you think about them more, there's details that they didn't show in the movie. Like the first one, like you said, there's probably some witchcraft in there. She's implanting thoughts into people's minds. In the second one, you're meant to think it's voodoo and Satanism, although it's really not. But it's you have to think about it a little. They don't actually spell this out. Right, because she, who, 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 she, she pulled out the little poppet or voodoo doll. They call them poppets as well, which is a little crocheted doll and pulls out the pin. Okay, so let's get to the end. This is a very short, simple story that uh, the doctor tells Therese, you know, you can't hate Millicent. It's not good for you. He tells Millicent, you can't hate Therese. It's not good for you. The doctor knows what's going on. This is the same person in split personalities. We don't get that until the reveal when Millicent says, you know, I'm going to solve the problem for good. I'm going to kill my sister. My sister loves voodoo, so I'm going to use voodoo against her. Ha ha ha. And she like creates a voodoo doll, pop it, like you said. And basically... It, the, it goes to the end of the movie where the doctor comes to the house and Therese has been killed. And this is where we get the big reveal that they're actually the same person. Right. He pulls off her blonde wig. <laughs> yes. Did you notice she moves? She moves her head when he does that. <laughs> yeah. So the blonde slutty girl has been killed by the spinster. And the doctor basically provides a medical report after the paramedics say, oh, <laughs> The the psychiatrist says, you know, we have her here to report a death, female, age 26, cause of death, unknown. And then he starts explaining to the paramedics, you know, this is the same woman, this blonde, he pulls off the blonde wig, it's Millicent underneath it. And again, they don't spell this out in the movie. I wish they would have. But the implication is that after the father died at some point, Millicent had a breakdown or Therese had a breakdown and split into two personalities and they've hated each other ever since. So really what this is at the end of the movie is a suicide. Right. And I really think they could have they could have portrayed that a little better. They just they just kind of yada yada through it. Right. And I think at that point you kind of I mean I I felt it was a possible suicide because I knew they were, you know, possibly the same person, you know. I wonder how many people pick up that plot twist early on in the movie that it's the same person. Because I, I don't think it's done very well. I really think it's obvious that they're the same person. Just because you never see them in the same room or talking to each other, it's all implied. Well, it's one of those tricks, you know, they use so often that now we kind of immediately, you know, you kind of know. 
But again, the heavy subject material here in the second story, just like the first one, way different than most family 830 entertainment. And it's darker. It's darker than the third, if you think about it. The third doesn't have any backstory like that. Yeah, this one is a particularly deep story that I wish they would have added more details. But if you think about it, I think this is actually the most interesting story. Right. But they only had 70 minutes and they had to cut it for time because the big one's still coming up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Robin, I know you've been waiting your whole life for this. We are now up to the famous third story of Trilogy of Terror, the story that traumatized an entire generation of kids. Right, you think you're ready for this one? Yep, absolutely. Let's do it. So this one's called Amelia. And again, this is absolutely one of the most infamous horror sections of any horror movie of all time. Kind of explain the setup to Amelia. Who's Amelia? The opening scene, she's carrying a wooden box and she's going to an apartment complex, which you assume is her place. And she goes into her apartment. She sets the, sets the box down on the coffee table. You know, it's like something she purchased in this old wooden box. She opens up the box and pulls out this wooden carved Zuni hunter doll. <laughs> I don't even know. <laughs> I wish we could somehow describe this in pictures. It's like a little tribal doll, you know, like a, right? It's not like, it's not like a little marionette cute doll. It's, you know, he's carved, a wood carving with straggly black hair. He's carrying it. He's got a little spear in his hand. And she pulls him out, and the first thing she says is like, well, you're ugly. Or something. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> well, she pulls him out. She doesn't seem afraid by him. She's just kind of amused by, you know, his little spear, and you're not exactly very attractive. And, um, <laughs> you know, and um, she holds him and admires him. Apparently she bought him for her new boyfriend, who I think teaches anthropology or archeology. span And she sets him back down and then she goes on the phone to call her mother. And she tries to explain to her mother it's Friday night. And usually her and her mom get together every Friday night. And um, you get the idea that she has this relationship with her mom where she's, still kind of attached to her because she's living in an apartment she subleased and it does you don't get the feeling like she has any freedom from her mother did you pick up on that yeah and again that's something we talked about earlier that when karen black got the script she's like it's pretty good and for people who have never seen this before the story is literally zuni doll attacks woman in an apartment it's about as simple as a story could be but karen black got this and she's like you know it'd be more interesting if i added more about amelia's life about how her mother's domineering about how she can't cut the chain from her mother which is very important there's a chain later with the doll ah interesting yeah so karen black yeah karen black added all this to the script because she thought it would be more better details because her mother, you could tell by her reaction, her mother, she keeps apologizing. I'm sorry, Mom, I do love you. I met this guy. He's really wonderful. Oh, Mom, please don't be upset. You know, she's apologizing. No, I met him after I moved in. You know, so you're getting the sense that the mother's like, who's this man? You should be here living with me, taking care of me all the time. You know, and... um you know, you kind of get, okay, there's a backstory in the relationship with the mother. And then she picks up the doll. She's like, well, anyhow, I got this doll. <laughs> <laughs> I 
a couple observations. Yeah, a couple observations here is that first off, Karen Black is a fantastic phone actress. Yes, she is. And that's one thing I noticed when I noticed in this episode, it's literally just her. There's not a single other actor or character in this whole story. It's just her on the phone. And she has to explain plot details to her mom and later her boyfriend. So she is really good at that phone acting. And that's something you notice when actors aren't good at it. It's really difficult because you have to be in your mind if you're on the phone. You have to be in your mind creating the other character on the other end. So you kind of like visualize and and see the other character, hear what they're saying, and then you have to be be committed in your reaction and response to that. And it's really tricky and it's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, I've never acted personally, but I can just see how hard that would be. And she makes it look so easy. And that's the type of stuff that people, I think, overlook when it comes to this movie. Mm Mm-hmm. The other observation I wanted to make is that there's a little callback to the first movie, the first story, Julie, because when she puts down the Zuni doll, she says, oh, look at you. Aren't you ugly? And that's literally what Julie's roommate said to her why she couldn't get a date. Oh, right. <laughs> I'm just joking. It's, <laughs> she didn't actually say that, but it's close enough. Aren't you ugly? Your mom wouldn't even like you. And Julie's like, hey, I'm a teacher. When you know what's about to come, it makes it like, oh, you shouldn't have done that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So she taunts the poor little Zuni doll. And, okay, and again, this movie moves real quick, and there's not a lot to talk about. (laughs) Basically, she puts the doll down. Well, she's got a scroll. We have to remember there's a scroll, and he's called One Who Kills, and she even reads it to her mother, and he has a little gold chain around his stomach. You know, is, is run his waist, and she reads the scroll. The chain cannot come off him, or the spirit inside will be released. So there you go. There's that. Uh oh. Doom, doom, doom. And you know, you're like, you want. And here's the funny thing about seeing it as a child. I saw this chain as like a big gold, heavy, like something a rapper would wear. You know, like. It's a big chain and it better not be broken. And then and then now that I watch, I'm like, well, that was just like a cheap little 99 cent chain. I mean, that's <laughs> there's no way that chain stays on. So she already tells you the chain can't come off. She gets off the phone and she's already told her mom, I'm sorry, we're not getting together. And then go ahead. She's going to have do her evening dinner. She's going to make dinner, make herself some dinner. Yeah. Okay. For people who have never seen this before. Yeah. So she, she is given a warning. It's like gremlins. Gremlins rips this off, by the way, really hardcore. In fact, a lot of movies rip this off where she's been given this little, or bought this little Zuni doll with the instruction on the the scroll that says, I am he who kills. I have a trapped spirit of a Zuni warrior inside me. If my chain breaks, then the spirit comes to life and I come to life. So already you're tipped off. This is not a good idea to have in your house. And then the gold chain literally breaks off the first five seconds, but she doesn't notice. So she's not aware the Zuni doll has come to life. And I swear, the entire last 15 minutes of the movie is just the Zuni doll terrorizing the hell out of her. Well, and then, of course, you know, she goes to the kitchen. She's going to make herself some steak or pork chop. She grabs the knife, one of the knives, to cut up steak, opens up the oven, turns on the heat, puts the meat in there. 
you know, you just see like, oh, that's some dinner. I'll just sit at home and dinner. And then doesn't she get on the phone with the boyfriend and says, I'm sorry, I told my mom. Yeah, she blows off to the date. Comes out of the kitchen, walks over to the coffee table, and he's not there. <laughs> that's right. Here's the first warning sign. Like you said, dun, dun, dun. The Zuni doll is, is not there. <laughs> Oh, look, the gold chain fell off. Oh, heavens to Betsy. But she, you know, she doesn't even react to that. You know, it's like, oh, that's too bad. Well, where are you? I'm like, um. <laughs> well, to be fair, if you had a doll and it said, if this chain falls off, it will kill you. Yeah. Right. You wouldn't take it seriously. Right. But this doll is dead serious and he's going to effing stab her. He's going to murder her and he's terrifying. And I can just imagine the next 15 minutes, every little eight and nine and 10 year old in America watching this, just their eyes wide open, scared to death. Well, she was also cute. Like, are you under the couch? <laughs> Got her hand in there and you know she's going to either get bit or, oh, ouch. Oh, I found her spear. And then she goes in the other room, where could he be? And then you hear this little pitter-patter. <laughs> the sound effects in this one are so amazing. Everyone should see this at least once in their life, this section. It's like like uh, if you've seen the Evil Dead movies, Sam Raimi ripped this off so hard. It's all Evil Dead. Yeah. Really? I've never seen those. I should watch those. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's my horror fans will know that one. The, the pitter-patter of the feet, her looking around, shadows moving around her, just little growls and, and snarls. Like, it's so much like an Evil Dead movie. And I'd forgotten that he doesn't kill her with the spear. He doesn't attack her with the spear. He gets something worse. He gets a kitchen knife. Right. He take The knife that she used to put her dinner in the oven, uh, she notices the knife is gone. And, and that's the thing. This movie's going to get bloody. It's, I, I'm shocked. I am shocked this was on TV for how bloody it's about to get. And his voice, I, I don't know if, I did a little research, and the voice of the doll, which is kind of, it's kind of amusing if you listen to interviews with Karen Wagner, or Karen um, Black, she kind of imitates them. And apparently the voice actor, um, voiceover actor is pretty well known. His name is Walker Edmiston. He was in H.R. Puffin stuff as Dr. Blinky. He was also the voice of Mr. Slugwort and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, wow. Was he the, the actor who played Slugworth or just the voice? Well, that I'm not sure. I don't know if they had a voiceover over that. I'd have to go back. But definitely he was pretty well known at that time as a vo famous voiceover actor. <laughs> so Slugworth is playing the Zuni doll. <laughs> wow <laughs> pretty wild okay so here we go and again it's hard to describe the rest of this movie because it's all action it's just karen black reacting to a piece of wood really and she's amazing she sells it and i think they had a track they had a track on the floor that he'd zip around on and they they love lots of first-person point-of-view shots where you see the Zuni doll as he's charging her, and you see her screaming and running away. <laughs> and when she's in the bathroom, she's locked the door, and all of a sudden you think, well, he's only 13 inches tall. And next thing you know, he apparently can jump, and he opened the door. <laughs> okay, we will try. I will, I will try to lay this out for people because I want to do this one justice. So... She is looking around for this missing Zuni doll, and she notices her knife that she used to cut her dinner, her steak, is missing. And so she's like, where are you? 
and she walks out into her living room and all of a sudden the Zuni doll cuts her lights out. So her lights go, and you know, that's not a good sign when the lights go out. <laughs> and then he starts stabbing the shit out of her, <laughs> out of nowhere, her, her feet and her legs. And she's just screaming. And he's chasing her around the house. Right. And then. Yeah. First comes the stabby shot, then the chase. Right. And then are they in the bathroom where she tries to drown him? Yeah, it's 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 hard to describe because it's so chaotic. It's just an yeah, Sam Raimi Evil Dead shot. <laughs> but when he stabs her, his hand moves so fast. Like he stabs her like 50 times in like five seconds. And she's just screaming and she runs into the bathroom. And I love the shot of her, her trapped in the bathroom screaming and just his little knife probing under the door trying to stab her from a... <laughs> It's a puppet. It's a little goddamn puppet. And he's so powerful. He can do so much. <laughs> well, that is the spirit of the Zuni hunter inside him. That's why. The scroll explained it. Yeah, so, okay, so she's in the bathroom, and she's screaming, and she's like, this can't be happening. She's, like, covered with blood. <laughs> this little doll is attacking her. And then he busts in, and she tries to drown him in the in the, in the the towel, right? Well, she has a wrapped up in a blanket, a little blanket. And she's just, it, I, you know, I thought of like Fatal Attraction with Glenn Close, you know, like she's like holding him down in it, you know, and he's somehow his strength, he's pushing back up. She's trying to drown him, but he gets back up. I mean, he, he then latches onto her, doesn't he? Well, yeah, he latches onto her a couple times. So in the bathroom, she tries to drown him, but it doesn't work. You can't drown a doll. So he gets up and chases her and he chases her into the closet. Right. And this is where she locks herself in the closet. And it's just him growling and hitting the closet as hard as he can and sticking the knife under the door. And this is where she gets the suitcase idea, which I think is fantastic. So she takes the suitcase and she's like, figures out, okay, well, I will just open it up and she'll go right in the suitcase and I'll trap him. So, you know, he comes through. It's so fast. He's like, boom, he's in the suitcase. She latches it shut. Locks him in there, and she's back in the living room, I think, puts it down on the floor, and next thing you know, up comes a knife, and (laughs) he's cutting through the leather. And then she's like, you know, the knife, the steak knife is coming through the leather. He's going to cut a hole and get out. And then she decides, well, I'm going to try to grab the, the knife away from him. And just the tension... It was so tense watching that because it's like, okay, should I grab the knife now? Should I grab the knife now? I'll cut myself. And then she grabs it and then she cuts herself and there's more blood. And then he cuts the hole and then does he, he comes out again and chases her into the kitchen, right? Yeah, okay. So <laughs> I'm trying to make sure I'm picturing this in my head. There, There's one detail we're kind of leaving out because they don't mention it that well in the movie is that he has somehow blocked her deadbolt so she can't leave the apartment. If you look, he's bent her deadbolt. So she can't leave. So she's trying to get out when he's in the suitcase. The suitcase, he starts stabbing the knife up to get out of the suitcase. And when he pops his head out of the suitcase, she grabs either his knife or an ice pick or something and just stabs the crap out of him. She just goes after his head. Wow, this movie's violent. I mean, admittedly, it's a piece of wood she's stabbing, but it's, you know, dozens and dozens of times she's going right for his head. I'm like, wow, this is this is hardcore for an 830 TV movie. Well, and also, again, we're talking about the camera work, you know, that quick, jerky hand. I don't know if it was handheld or what, but, you know, the way the doll, the doll is shot with the hair zooming and the ah, and then the sound effects of his voice and it's very jerky. 
so that just builds to the tension and fear. It's terrifying. And it's it's goofy and terrifying at the same time, which is an interesting combo. Like you said, we you watch this as a kid. This is the scariest thing you've ever seen. You watch it now, it's kind of comical. Um, so then I think she's back in the kitchen. You know, he runs in. And does he grab her by the... No, this is where he bites her. He bites her. Yeah, he bites her in the hand. Yeah, in her hand. And this is where she... You haven't seen Evil Dead, but they do this in Evil Dead where... Uh, Bruce Campbell gets bit on the hand and it's literally just him acting with a fake zombie head attached to his hand as he runs around a room and smashes it against stuff and that's what Karen Black has to do here she's literally Bruce Campbelling all around the apartment smashing into stuff and now we end up in the kitchen so they're back in, in the kitchen and I believe he grabs her you know he's grabbing parts of her body and she's trying to pull him and yank him off and then next he like the next shot I think he's like got her his mouth, like he, he grabs her neck with his mouth, like a piranha. Her jugular. He's attached to her jugular. Wiggling and wiggling and blood, and you're like, oh, my. Because even if she pulls him off, it's like, I don't even want to see what's going to happen. And then she's near the stove. Am I correct? Where she's already near the oven, where the meat is still in there. Mm-hmm. Is that when she just kind of, like, maneuvers her way around opens up the oven and throws him in there and she slams the oven. Yeah. For anybody who's seen gremlins, they stole this in gremlins basically with the microwave. But yeah, the Zuni guy goes into the oven and basically burns alive and screams. And it's the sound effects are horrific. Here's another thing where as a child, the visuals were very powerful. It's hot in the oven. You know, he's going to burn and they show the outline of this, screeching face with flame shooting out of it as if you're looking through the oven and ah, and then she presses her back against it and then the black smoke coming out of it and that was really did me in like it's like oh I don't need I mean the fact that those billowing black puffs of black smoke from him and you're just praying like is this even going to work and it does. She opened. Well, wait. She opens it up. You're gonna give it a couple minutes. And when she opens up the oven, all of a sudden you get the sense that this energy or fumes from the what's inside the oven hits her, and it's this howling scream from her. Yeah, this is a wonderfully horrific ending where she burns the Zuni doll alive. He screams, turns to black smoke. She defeats him. God bless our hero Amelia. She uh, she kills him. But when she opens the oven, somehow his spirit gets transferred out into her. There's like a rush of smoke or something where they show the shot of her face and this horror from her, like her mouth open. And Yeah, but I think lost in the in this shuffle is the fact that she did defeat the Zuni doll. I think people forget that. Yeah. <laughs> she actually did kill him. She burned him alive in the oven. And now we get the epilogue. Which, this is the crazy part. This is the part that everyone remembers. There's an image, a, a visual here that everyone remembers. It's like one of the most iconic visuals to this day. I will uh, set it up here. That So the spirit of the Zuni doll, you think, he, even though she killed it, it has been passed into her. And then afterwards we fade out and there's probably a commercial here or whatever. And we come back and she's on the phone with her mom. Who, remember, her mom just browbeats her. Her mom is overbearing and evil and stuff. And, and Amelia's like... Hi, Mom. 
Oh, yes. No, I love you, Mom. You know what? Why don't you come over tonight and we'll have a special night together, just like you planned. Oh, yes, Mother. I, I want to see you tonight as soon as possible. <laughs> she said it. We're setting up. She's going to kill her mom. <laughs> and then as uh, the phone call fades out, we see her, what? She breaks off the locks, the deadbolt that was bent earlier. She just snaps it off with her hands because she's so strong. And then she sits and waits for her mother and waits for the death blow. And this is the visual. And Robin, I will totally give you the honor. What is the visual we see here? You see her remove the deadbolt. And then all of a sudden she gets in front of the door, a few feet in front of the door. And she crouches down. And it's almost like this golem, schmeagle kind of animalistic. You know, she's got her feet apart, her knees. And she kind of changes her body. Here's another you know, kudos to her on her, how she uses her physicality to embrace a new character, the spirit, the Zuni warrior. And she bends down and she's kind of scrunched over and she's got a a pretty good sized knife <laughs> in her hand. And she just starts smashing, like poking into the floor. I'm like, boom, boom, like I'm ready, boom. And then... There's a close-up. The camera comes right up to her face, and already her eyebrows and her hair, she's just already looking wild. You know something's not right. And then she opens up her lips, the widest grin, and she's got the sharp, jagged teeth of the warrior, the Zuni warrior. (laughs) Even before they show the teeth, the way she set it up with her body language and the way she's like this animal, mm-hmm. you know, and her hair and her eyebrows and her eyes, even before she opens up to smile, that grin of all those sharp teeth. And I guess I read that was her suggestion, right? Yeah, they didn't originally have her with the Zuni teeth, but she's like, it would be way scarier if I had the teeth in. And then I was listening to the DVD commentary and she was watching it. She's like, oh, that's too scary. We shouldn't have done that. That's too much for little kids. How did you find the commentary? Did you find it streaming? No, I just, I'd have the old DVD sitting around. I bought it like in 2000. It's got a director's commentary. Oh, okay. (laughs) But yeah, she was saying that image of her with the big sharp teeth was too terrifying. That that probably should not have been in the episode because that's what everyone remembers from this episode. In fact, it's even on the cover of the DVD, her with those teeth. Right, when they released the DVD many years later, they used that shot. Mm-hmm. One of the most iconic shots in horror movie history. And do you know the doll? I don't know if you're aware of this. So the Zuni doll, there were three of them used in the film. And the one, the one main one they used for most of the upfront shots, the one that was on the coffee table... Do you know it brought in the largest amount of money, the highest bid prop in all of history of horror films, going for $217,000, outbidding Jack Nicholson's axe in The Shining? Wow. Yes. That doll is the number one that it, you know, takes the lead as the most, the highest pay for uh, prop. In in history, horror history props. Yeah, and that's, again, what we're trying to get across to you guys who have maybe never seen this movie before. This movie is iconic, and this was a big deal. And that Zuni doll outbid Jack Nicholson's axe. Like, that's incredible. This was a TV movie. This wasn't even a theatrical release. 
And I think usually when they individuals that purchase these items, usually they're museums. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's lots of stone museums or I guess you'd call them paranormal, strange, unusual, the unexplained museums. Um, so usually either some private collector that just liked them so much or, um, you know, sometimes people collect these to maybe donate for a short time to be on view in a museum, mm-hmm. wherever. But there were, you know, two others. But I thought that was pretty interesting. And and here's another thing is the culture of the doll, just like clowns and masks, really have such a psychological effect in how we are terrorized, even as adults. You know, some people, we still see dolls in movies and masks and clowns, and it's still that childlike in us because we always associate a doll or even though we knew it was a Zuni hunter, oh, it's little, you know, it's kind of cute. But um, it kind of really during that time, you started having movies like the Puppet Master franchise of the wooden carved evil dolls. And then I think there was Anthony Hopkins in Magic. I love Magic. As a ventriloquist. Yeah, that's... uh... The doll, that's a big thing. I remember in Poltergeist, you you know Poltergeist, obviously, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah, everyone remembers certain things about that movie, but the clown doll attacking the kid. Yeah. That was one of the scariest things I ever saw as a kid. I don't know if I really ever did get over that. Just dolls attacking people is terrifying if you can pull it off. Well, because we always associate the, you know, the sweet softness of our nostalgia's children. But then when you flip it around to make it evil, it just makes even that much more horrifying. Even though he wasn't a sweet little doll, but you know. Yeah, with the asterisk being if they play it straight. Like we, you and I talked about this before we started recording. There's a lot of horror comedies out there that like to use dolls and dolls attacking people. This trilogy of terror is not played like a horror comedy at, not at, at all. all. No. no. So if they go for it really and they really try to not make it funny it really messes with people. And like I said, this is the movie that really messed with people to the point that you said earlier that you just posted a picture of that Zuni doll on Instagram or Twitter and and people instantly reacted to it. Right, because when you use social media, you have different pockets of people that, you know, depending on your interests, you know. So, I mean, I know for you, there's the survivor people, the film people, maybe sports Mm -hmm. because of the baseball. And so we have these pockets of people and you're like, well, if I post a picture of my dog, of course, my dog friends are going to like it. But when I posted that, it didn't matter what pocket they were in. It was certainly a certain demographic and age that were like that, even an opera singer, that. (laughs) (laughs) Even the opera crowd is terrified of the Zuni doll. Isn't that the, that's that doll. Yeah. It's, it just creates such a reaction. (laughs) Yeah, and again, it's 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 a disservice to the other two stories in this movie that the Zuni doll is so memorable, but it really is, and it's I cannot get that across enough to people. I hope my younger listeners listen to this and seek out Trilogy of Terror, nineteen seventy five. I'm I cannot recommend this highly enough, at least for the Zuni doll. And I think it's free right now on Amazon. I mean, I think you can watch it for free on Prime. Um, and if not, it's like $2 to rent. But here's the thing is I think it's interesting for the older generation to go back and watch the first two parts because I'm sure that even myself, I was kind of shocked and taken back. Like, I don't remember that. That's heavy duty. 
Yeah, I mean, the first two really have some deep themes in them, and they should not be brushed aside like they tend to be. Well, this was lots of fun. This was great. <laughs> it was fun. I'm really glad. I got to say one more thing, just because I'm doing Horror Month here, is that this movie, like one of my childhood fears, one of the most primal fears I think any kid has is, is like inanimate objects attacking them, their house attacking them, toys attacking them. Yeah. And that's why Poltergeist was so memorable to everybody my age, why Trilogy of Terror was memorable to these kids in the 70s. But the scariest thing I ever saw in my life, I swear to God, I've been talking about this for years, and I, it's hard to find a copy of it. There was this short film that they used to run on HBO in the late 70s called, I think, Recorded Live. And I'm not expecting you to know it, but someone out there may have heard of it. It's about a guy. It's like a student film. Some guy at USC made the student film. It's about a guy going to a like a movie studio or an editor's workshop where people cut film, film strips and stuff. And he gets attacked by the film strips and the film strips chase him and basically eat him alive. Wow. It was on H. It was on HBO all the time in the late 70s. And I caught it one time at the wrong age. I was like seven which was a bad time to see something like that. To this day, I have never been more shaken up by anything I've ever seen in a movie. Like, inanimate objects attacking people. It's it's terrifying to little kids. I, I hope that comes across to people. It's That is something that messes up a little kid. Well, and again, I know this is really aging me, but I'm sure, you know, like Willy Wonka, you know, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, um, it was a Dick Van Dyke film. You know, it, it was a harmless, fun film, but that, uh, like the Zuni doll, the child catcher, mm -hmm. who actually the actor was a very well-known ballet dancer and performer on stage and theater. That child catcher in uh, with the candy, there was something about the face and the cosmetic of how they used the face in it, that he had all this makeup on and candy and, you know, you never really know as children, because I'll tell you something, when I grew up, well, in my childhood, my mother decided what movies we were going to see, okay? It was always uh, espionage, cloak and dagger. So even though we were young, and my dad would say, well, shouldn't we take them to, like, the horse with the flying tail? <laughs> my mom was like, no, I really want to see Marathon Man. <laughs> okay. So I grew up, and she also had all these books on her bookshelves, Boys from Brazil, Marathon Man, Three Days of the Condor, The French Connection, um, Eagle Has Landed, Bear Island. I mean, those are not, you know, my dad's like, I don't know, this might be too much for the but she really appreciated um, the espionage and the political, you know, that genre. And to this day... I go back to those films and I really respect and appreciate, you know, all those great films of all the president's men, Serpico, you know, that period in the seventies of those, that genre, you know, I mean, we did see childlike, you know, movies, but it was like, you know, the wife, you know, I don't know how it is in a marriage, but sometimes one's like, I really want to go see this movie. <laughs> you know, I remember going to see Jaws. That was kind of the one we saw it in a drive-in, and um, that's probably up there with my top five favorite films of all time is Jaws, the original. Yeah, hopefully you were old enough when you saw it the first time, because that's a tough one as your first horror movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my, my daughter holds that against me. My daughter's 22, and she's like, I cannot believe you showed me Jaws when I was like six. 
I'm like, well, I got to show it to you sometime. Might as well <laughs> give you many years later to recover. You got to be introduced to it at some point. Right, because that, let's see, during that year, there was also, well, Star Wars came out a year later, right, 76, and you had um, Close Encounters as well. That was really a wonderful time in film, in history of film. Yeah, I agree. I I loved growing up in the 70s. I loved it. I loved the 80s, too, but that's that's one thing. It's the culture of growing up in the 70s. There's no other decade, I think, that was quite like that. No, not at all. Not at all. All right. Well, I think we have successfully covered Trilogy of Terror for people. Again, this is my lead-off for Horror Month. It absolutely deserves to be lead-off in Horror Month just because, man, this movie is so you know important to all the things it uh, influenced later, and I really think everyone should know about it. And... It's really it's really worth it. It's good even going back to watch it again. You know, it's something else. Absolutely. So before you go, is there anything you want to plug? Any? Uh, I know you have some art websites. You want to talk about those? Well, um, I mean, I paint. I do commissions of large contemporary oils. Um, so I have some commissions for people's homes or pieces I'm doing. Sometimes I do logos uh, for the dog dog shows because um, I'm kind of in the dog world. I'm always painting, so I'm whether it's for somebody else or for myself, um, it's very rewarding. And, and of course it goes, I mean, I'm being creative. So whether I'm watching a great film or appreciating great screenwriting or acting, it's kind of, I think a lot of people that are painters, it's in that same vein is appreciating film and cinematography and what have you. So that's about it. Have you ever painted a Zuni fetish doll? Okay. So. <laughs> oh, I, I didn't even know there was a yes to this answer. All right. So. I have an Instagram, and you know how on Instagram is more about a visual aesthetic, right? You know, if you're going to post yourself in the car, you don't want your husband's dirty socks in the back seat. You know, it's very much kind of a staging. Of course, it's mostly just art. I'm like, okay, I just posted these dragon paintings because the House of the Dragon is coming out. So I have all these gorgeous big dragon paintings. I'm like, all right, I really want to tell everyone about the podcast, how am I going to post something visually? <laughs> and I thought I could do the Zuni doll. I don't know, maybe update him, put him in an unusual circumstance. <laughs> so wait, the Zuni doll, what do you, we have him ice skating or something? What's he doing? Oh my God. I should have him figure skating in a competition. <laughs> Okay, that I'll do. I should do that. And then I'll post it on Twitter also. Because you want to tell people I'm going to be on a podcast because your friends have these interests as well. But, you know, you're trying to like, okay, if I post the Don Karen Black, how do I keep it related and connected to my brand? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure your brand and my brand overlaps too much, but I'm, I'm very happy you were on the podcast. Well, I, I've drawn and done baseball art of baseball players. Oh, that's good. Athletes. Oh, I love drawing athletes. Yeah, not just figure skaters, but basketball, football, baseball. I think you need to do the Zuni fetish doll doing a tomahawk dunk over Michael Jordan. Okay. O over who? Well, Michael Jordan, Shaq, anybody you want to pick, Shaquille O'Neal. I, I, I know you're probably not into the world of basketball that much. Maybe I could have him like with Dennis Rodman. And you're not sure which is. <laughs> it's got to be Karen Black dressed as Dennis Rodman. Oh, my God. 
you know, we joke about this, but I could easily pull out my iPad and do it. All right. Well, hopefully this uh, podcast will open a whole new avenue for you at some point. It will. And I will make sure to tag you so you can share it. Okay. Uh, Again, thank you for joining me. And uh, once again, everyone, thank you for listening. Again, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. And until next time, I'll be out there searching for more horror movies that deserve more love. And I sure as hell will be keeping the gold chain on my Zuni fetish doll. I'll talk to you guys later. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. First you'll experience dizziness, then mild paralysis, and then total cardiac arrest. You've drugged me! No, dear. I've killed you.